This is the Clinical Takeaway podcast from HealthEd, where we interview leading medical experts on important topics that can positively change the way you practice. Here's your host, GP and medical educator, Dr. David Lim. HealthEd's face-to-face seminars are starting up again in 2022. And we hope that you will be able to join us for a day of high quality learning with a lineup of great speakers and important topics in women's and children's health. I'll be chairing a number of these events and I look forward to seeing you there. Register at healthed.com.au. What do you know about vaccinating a child between 6 to 12 months if the family are travelling to a country at high risk of TB, meningitis, chickenpox? Do you advise patients to have the BCG and rabies vaccine or are they really only discussed because the patient asks about them? Critical conversations regarding travel vaccinations must happen in our GP consultations and cover TB, rabies, polio, meningitis, chickenpox, and the basic vaccines. And thankfully, there are clinics that we can refer our patients to if we feel that our knowledge is not comprehensive or if the patients are at particular risks. In this podcast, I will be speaking to Dr. Deb Mills. Uh, Dr. Mills, tell us about yourself. I have been working in the field of travel medicine for 33 years, and I got into travel medicine, I have to say, because I thought, how fun. You know, people are traveling, and it's medicine, and um, it was so badly done. You know, Mm. the training that we received at medical school was really very rudimentary I remember having one lecture and I remember seeing a patient who came in and I felt completely at sea because they had told us you give everybody chloroquine and malaprim and typhoid and cholera vaccines and this chap was asking me what if I get sick what do I do if I get diarrhea and I thought oh my god goodness this is really there's a lot to this and I actually found this job through my travel agent because I've been traveling and she said oh there's this job going in the travel industry to do travel um, health and and I said oh I don't want a real job I want to travel but actually I did want a real job and so I got into travel medicine and then I kind of developed my system along with the development of travel medicine there weren't even proper conferences in those days and now there are textbooks on how to treat travelers diarrhea there are conferences completely devoted to tiny aspects of travel medicine it's really progressed a long way Um, from that first rudimentary lecture and health education is very important and travel medicine now encompasses pre-travel which is looking after people before they go sorting out their vaccines their medications their their general health to make sure that they're in good shape and treating them when they come back if they've contracted you know ciguatera or dengue or um, malaria or persistent diarrhea blastocystis all that kind of thing and we do a kind of tertiary level service, if you like. So we would expect, well, I mean, we can't see every travel patient. Travel medicine is a huge area and only about 4% of travellers will see a specialised travel clinic. Most travellers are going to their GP. And so what I would like to think is that we can get GPs very well skilled so they know 
what they should be doing and when they should be referring. And then I think that we work best for the patients and the GPs and everybody. Well, Deb, let's just start with the pre-travel consultation because you said a lot has changed. So take us through a, a typical consult. A patient comes in, um, the skies are now full of planes and full of people. We love oh, it's travel. booming. It, they're surging out the door. It's like the last one out put out the lights. It's amazing. The pent-up demand is extraordinary. People have been desperate to get on these planes. And at the moment, we're seeing the workers, we're seeing the people who don't take a lot of planning to get away. And I think that's going to change as people who had their trips booked in Australia and then, you know, because they thought, oh, we'll be here forever, will gradually, you know, their their timelines will be so that they will be travelling. So, yes, travel is surging. The, um, the way that I recommend people approach a pre-travel consultation is you need to think of it differently to general practice. In general practice, you ask lots of kind of general questions like, you know, what brings you here today? With travel medicine, you know what's bringing them there. You basically are doing a management plan more than a diagnosis because people come with the diagnosis. I'm going to Bali. I'm going to Asia. I'm pregnant and I'm traveling to such and such. So we have a very detailed set of questions that we ask people before they even get into the doctor. So we've got where they're going, what they're doing, their past health, and our job is to really formulate the management plan. Now, in general practice, you probably know the patient a bit better. You will know what their past medical history has been like. So you'll know if they've got no spleen. So that is a big head start when you're in general practice. But you need to know the details of the destination. It's not good enough to just say, I'm going to South America. You really need to know exactly where in South America. Because the malaria risk and the diarrhea risk and the typhoid risk will change based on exactly where in the country you go. And the common countries, the GP should get to know. Lots of people go to Bali. You know, doctors should really understand Bali very, very well. Maybe they don't necessarily want to understand the intricacies of South America quite so much because it does vary depending on which part of the Amazon you go to. Now, GPs are so busy doing all their other stuff. It's probably not the best use of their time when they might see one patient going to South America. But if they're seeing lots of people go to Bali, maybe lots of people go to Thailand, to the resorts, that sort of thing. They should really you know, get a travel brochure, read where they're going so that they can really understand the kind of risk that people are at. So you know you know, where they're going, what they're doing is important, whether they're going to be you know, lying on the beach and going to the shops or whether they're going to be trekking in the mountains. That makes a big difference. So you get the history and you work out exactly what they're doing. And then the next step is to work out what vaccines you need. And, and one of the things that really surprises doctors when I train them is because of medicine training us to think about typhoid and cholera, we forget about the incredibly basic vaccines. Like, have they had a full course of childhood vaccines? And perhaps if we run through each of the vaccines that we would talk about. So we start with polio. Now, everyone needs to have had a complete course of polio. You will have heard cases of a case of polio in the US recently that the polio vaccine, when you give it, very rarely it will revert to basically paralytic polio. So we need to make sure everybody's had a full course of polio vaccine. And generally that means their childhood vaccine and one adult dose. And the adult dose means not 15 years old, but kind of in that adulthood. So everybody needs to have that. The, the next thing is tetanus. Have they had a tetanus in the last 10 years? Now, 
in Australia, the guidelines will say you have your tetanuses as a child and maybe one at age 50, and then you don't need any more because you could always go and get a tetanus needle if you got injured. But if you're in Nepal mm. or even Bali, it's not easy to get a tetanus needle. And even in places like France, it can be difficult to get a tetanus needle. So every traveller needs to make sure that they've had their tetanus up to date and they really need to get Adacel or Boostrix. They need that whooping cough cover. During the floods in Brisbane, the Queensland Health gave out ADT to everybody. It was such a terrible waste. Subsequently, there was an outbreak of whooping cough because people weren't covered for the whooping cough. And a lot of people, when you ask them about tetanus, they go, oh, no, I haven't had tetanus. And you say, have you had a whooping cough vaccine because there are babies in the family? Oh, yes, I had that. So the, the patients don't often realise that it's all it comes as a bunch. And I tell you, this, this immunisation register, oh, my gosh, it is fantastic. Doctors should be absolutely diligent and making sure all the vaccines go onto the immunisation register, not just COVID, but everything. Mm -hmm. People are very, very good at losing their vaccine records. Mm -hmm. Having them on that register is just a godsend for saving a lot of unnecessary vaccination. So having a system to maybe put the old vaccines onto air would be really good if the GPs have got that time um, because it does make life a bit easier for patients because they have no idea what they've had. Mm-hmm. Now, the next sort of childhood vaccine that people need to think about is measles. Anyone born between 1966 and 1983, so 1966 to 1983, has probably only had one dose of measles vaccine. Before 1966, people caused the disease, so they're going to be immune. After 1983, and these are Queensland stats, so they might change a little bit for the other states, probably not too much. Everyone got two doses of measles vaccine. But between 1966 and 1983, they only got one. And so the patients think that they're covered. They think, oh, well, I've had my measles when I was a child. I'm all done. Measles is very, very contagious. You only have to go into a room where measles has been in the two hours previously and you'll catch measles. And in Australia, the cases of measles we see are people coming back from countries where measles is circulating a lot more. There was a cinema attendant who went to Bali on a holiday and came back and basically set off an outbreak which caused about 70 people to get measles. So measles is incredibly underestimated and everybody should be asked or, you know, their vaccine records checked. And if there's no record, they should have an antibody level done so that you know if someone's had measles. Now, the trick with measles is you've got to make sure if you're giving a measles vaccine, and we'll talk about chickenpox in a minute, you don't give it if people are going to need other live vaccines, so things like yellow fever. So you need to be a bit careful about timing for live vaccines, which perhaps we can talk about later. Um, So measles is very important in those age groups particularly, and just making sure everybody has had two measles vaccines. And the other little tweak, if you like, is the kids who are between 6 and 12 months of age if they are traveling, they have not had a measles vaccine yet. Their measles antibodies that they got from mum when they were born have probably gone by about six months. So these kids, if they get measles, will not only get sick with measles, but it will damage their immune system and then they get lots of other diseases. So those kids need to have an extra measles vaccine. They still get their 12-month and 18-month vaccines, but they get an extra one, which unfortunately is not funded by most jurisdictions. But they get an extra one between if they're traveling between six and 12 months of age 
That way they're protected against measles. Now, interestingly, the reason babies need to have all these extra needles, I only found this out a little while ago, they can't store the um, cells in the bone marrow that make them able to kind of re you know, the little factories that make the antibodies are stored in the bone marrow of adults, but it doesn't happen in kids. So that's why you've got to keep getting the vaccines because they work for a while and then it's gone. Um, now, the other one they wanted to talk about was chickenpox. Everybody, you know, CDC and the Americans and you read the guidelines say you need two chickenpox vaccines, but the schedule for babies only includes one at 18 months. So once again, the parents think that they're fine. They think, oh, well, the kids have had their routine vaccines. They're all covered, but they're not. Kids who are traveling need to get a second chickenpox vaccine so that they are basically got good cover. And I say routinely give it to them at four before they go to school because they have one at 18 months, but it can be given a bit earlier. And adults, of course, you give them one and another one in um, a month or two. And I had a patient who was traveling to France. Now, France is, of course, very civilized. And the doctor spoke to her about chickenpox. And she said, well, look, I haven't actually had chickenpox, but the people in my family had chickenpox. And the doctor said, oh, well, fair enough, off you go. Now, unfortunately, chickenpox is not as contagious as measles. And this young woman contracted chickenpox in France. She said it was the worst experience of her life. You know, she couldn't speak the language. She was trying to get um, calamine lotion and so on. And she sent me a picture of her back, which was absolutely riddled with scars five months after the chickenpox. Now, what I would recommend is if people are not sure about the history of chickenpox, that they have a blood test. And then we can see whether someone's had chickenpox or not. And if not, then they can be vaccinated. And that way, very simple, saves a very nasty disease, which can be quite disfiguring. So they're the kind of basic childhood vaccines that often get forgotten mm -hmm. when we're talking about um, travel vaccines. And every GP can do that really well. Um, just double check. The trick with the live vaccines, which are the chickenpox vaccine and the measles vaccine is think about if the patient will be needing to have other important live vaccines like yellow fever, like Japanese encephalitis. And maybe if that's the case and you're going to have to refer them for the more specialized vaccines, you don't give them that vaccine if they're leaving within the next month because you need to leave a month between live vaccines. So measles and chickenpox and yellow fever can all be given on the same day or a month apart. But not a week apart. Is that message getting out there? Are patients actually coming and giving us enough time for all this? No, they're not. They're terrors. Because life is so different now. You know, 30 years ago, people planned their trips a long way in advance. But now people are all leaving at the last minute. So it's quite difficult. So that's why when you get them in there, you sort of need to do everything at the same time because you don't have a month later to give that. And look, the other thing that I would put in a plea for if doctors have patients who are going to start TNF inhibitors, you know, those immunosuppressive drugs that make trouble with the immune system, ask the question to the patient, do you think you would like to travel in future? Will you think about traveling to Africa or South America? They can go and have their yellow fever vaccine before they start those drugs and they're covered for life. Oh my gosh, if I could just get that one message through this podcast, it would be so fantastic because so many patients come to me and they say, nobody told me, nobody asked me. And we've sent brochures out to the specialists and said, please think about this. Ask this question before people go on these TNF inhibitors. Ask them about their travel plans. 
and you know it gets nowhere because you know people are sick and they're busy but it really makes life so much easier if they can have those live vaccines before they start those medications particularly with the drugs you know with the vaccines which last for life like yellow fever and japanese encephalitis that is such an incredibly important point deb well done thank you yeah, so. yeah. and it's something people say oh yes of course <clears throat> but it just never comes up so just something to have in the back of your mind for those patients because these people are happy and they want to go on their lovely trips. You know, they've got wishes to go and see the three great waterfalls of their life. You know, the three great waterfalls are Victoria Falls mm. in Africa, mm. Iguazu Falls in South America and Niagara Falls. Now, the other two are a problem when it comes to vaccines and so on. If someone's having their spleen out, you know, you've got, you think about all those spleen vaccines, but people don't think about the TNF inhibitor vaccines. Now, let's talk about some of the more exotic vaccines. SGPs, we don't often give them, you know, things like BCGs and whatever. What are your comments about these sorts of vaccines, even Japanese encephalitis, for example? Things like the BCG vaccine for kids. Mm -hmm. I would make a plea for people to think about that when the kids are very small. We're seeing people come in for their BCG at three and four. And look, it's a nightmare to vaccinate these kids. You can't hold them still enough to do an intradermal vaccine. Mm -hmm. And the benefit that they get from this vaccine is very much earlier, like when kids are born. Of course, in many countries, the BCG is given at birth, places mm -hmm. like India, Pakistan, Nepal. And if GPs have families who are um, connected to these countries, who are likely to go and visit these countries, it's really worth encouraging them to get the vaccine early. And it's difficult at the moment because many of the BCG clinics run by the government have closed because of, you know, absences and the difficulty with the vaccine. It's not officially registered in Australia. So it often takes everybody a while to kind of find somewhere to do it and get it done. And so the kids are quite old. I had one patient come in and he said, I booked this child in with the um, health clinic, the, the government health clinic, when it was four hours old. And he'd finally given up when the child was two to come and have the vaccine. The other surprising thing with the BCG is it takes three months to work. So you can't have it just before you go. It's not, not possible. It won't work. You can't have the vaccine just before you leave. It oh. needs to be done three months in advance in order for it to be fully effective. Deb, there's been a real change in our Australian demographics. And um, we are now having a lot more people coming to Australia from uh, the Indian subcontinent. And of course, you're quite right. If they have a child, they would love to take their newborn back home to show the family. And what you're really saying is if they're going to do that, make sure that child has a BCG as early as possible. But that can only happen if a doctor really says to the pregnant mother, will you be taking your child back to see your family when they're young? Because if you do, will you consider giving your child a BCG? Absolutely, David. That is That, is, that would just be heavenly if doctors would say that because it takes a while to organise. So if you put it in the mother's mind, we have a lot of families who come in because the mother knows they've had a BCG themselves and they are the ones who are instigating it. Um, but often they don't quite know where to get it. So it'd be great if the GPs were on board with that. And many of them are quite surprised that it's not given at birth in Australia because we're a civilised country and why don't we give it at birth? And, and it's a good chance when they do come in for us to discuss with them things like the early measles vaccine, 
like the fact that the yellow fever will be delayed because they're little, because we don't give yellow fever really until they're one. And also to discuss things like the meningococcal vaccines. Like meningococcal B vaccine is not on the routine schedule except in South Australia. And so it would make sense if kids are being taken back into an environment where lots of happy relatives are going to be you know, breathing on this child that they've had a course of meningococcal B vaccine and even the early meningococcal ACWI vaccine. So the ACWI is in the schedule free at 12 months of age, but the high risk time for kids to get meningococcal disease is really from you know a few months of age, from birth. So it would make sense to have an extra ACWI vaccine if kids are going back to visit families as well. Deb, you're saying a lot of things that a lot of GPs are not confident doing. We've been asked to give extra vaccines and vaccines early, uh, and, and we're kind of feeling a little bit out of our comfort zone, but you're saying, look, forget it, this is really important stuff, and it's really important for me to hear that. The second, of course, is that there had been a generation of all the GPs where we were told, don't give BCG because that would muck up your mental tests. So yes. we've been shying away from BCGs. Absolutely. And look, it's hard work to give because it's a multi-dose file. You have to give a bunch of kids or, you know, within a couple of hours. Um, so it is the sort of thing that you would probably refer. Like we don't have many GPs that are actually giving the BCG, but that doesn't mean the GPs can't be really supportive. We know that recommendation of an influenza vaccine is a very powerful motivator for patients. And so recommendation for a BCG is also a very powerful motivator. The yeah. other interesting thing about BCG is if the children have been home to visit the family, there's a risk that they could have picked up TB. Mm-hmm. Now, um, I had a patient who was waiting for the chest clinic to give them a um, BCG. The family were based in India. And so the family waited and waited and they got a phone call from the chest clinic literally days before the child was due to leave for India the first time. They went to India for a couple of months. When they returned, because the child has already been in India, you have to wait three months and you have to do a MAN2 test to double check before you give a BCG that the child has not already been exposed. And so they came to me and said, well, we want to have our BCG now. And I said, well, we have to do this this MAN2 test. We have to wait three months after their return. Anyway, this poor child was positive. I looked at the man too and I thought, no, this can't be possible. It was two weeks in India. So this poor child had to go off to the um, chest clinic and be treated for TB or, or potential TB before they went away. You know, that was completely preventable because the child could have had a BCG before they left and the child could have got gravely ill. TB in very small children is devastating. It's much, much worse than in adults. They get millary TB, which is like septicemia of TB, and it's very, very bad, which is why in so many countries of the world they give a BCG. Now, in America, they'd never give a BCG. They never give any BCG in the USA because they say, well, it'll interfere with the MAN2 test. But there are ways around that, and it's mainly the babies that we worry about. The recommendations say if a child will be in a high-risk country, which is more than 40 cases per 100,000, so India... Um, Pakistan, the, you know, the, the countries you can imagine. If they're going to be in those countries for three months cumulatively before the age of five, they should have a BCG. That's the guidelines in Australia. And sometimes we would amend that. There might be someone in the family who's got TB and the child is going home to visit relatives. Um, there might be big weddings where lots and lots of people are coming. You have no idea what the medical care of these 
people will be and so they might have active TB. Kids who are going to be in very remote villages which are high risk. So children at very high risk, the three-month rule gets bent a bit, but it's very hard to get three months of travel in a high-risk country if you're four. And we have people come in and they're quite disappointed because they can't get the child vaccinated at four because they say, well, you're not going to have three months in a risk country. So, yeah, thinking about the BCG around about birth or within the first six months would be marvellous. And the parents are very supportive because when I say to them, well, it leaves a little scar, you've probably got one yourself. And they go, oh, yes, yes, of course. So they're very supportive. And even in countries where the risk isn't that high, parents want the BCG because they know they've heard the stories of how difficult TB is and how serious and how hard to treat it is. Last question about access, because now you're making such a strong case for it. Uh, for those of us who probably haven't even given one, and you said that the waiting list is ridiculously long, uh, where are BCG vaccinations given? So they're generally given by the public health units. But the problem is the demand is there from the patients, but there's no lobbying by the doctors. In my view, the doctors should be writing to their public health departments and saying, why are you not giving BCG? This is disgraceful. These patients have a need. In, in Queensland, Campbell Newman shut the chest clinic. Oh, we don't need BCGs anymore. What? And so, of course, all the people who could give BCGs disappeared. They found other jobs that were not available. And, of course, you imagine the chest clinic that's treating patients with TB. They can't have little babies coming in to have BCGs on the same day. So they've got to set aside a special day. The problem is that the vaccine that we have in Australia for TB, the BCG, is not officially registered in Australia. It's a very good vaccine. It's used by all the public health units across Australia. It's used in New Zealand. It's made in Denmark, the current one. So it's a good vaccine. It's just it's not registered. So there are extra rules around giving it. And the rules, from what I heard from the chest clinic, means that it's not so easy for the nurses to run these clinics. So the patients have to be seen by doctors, so the staffing issues. But I'm sure pressure from the GPs to say, why are you not giving BCGs to the high-risk patients would make a difference. And the people running these clinics, I don't think they realise how much demand there is. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I'm sure that after your podcast, the, you know, many light bulb moments would have occurred across the nation. So the demand might even increase. Very, We'd love the, the kids at risk to have the BCG so they don't have to suffer like my poor little patient. You know, one of the things, Steph, is that we're going to run out of time with this uh, pre-travel consult. We might hope to maybe get you one day for a post-travel consult and see what you do there. But as we head towards the end of this particular podcast, what are your key messages to GPs? My key messages are take a very good history, like in all of medicine, so you know what your risk profile is of the patient know when to refer, know when you feel out of your depth to refer to your local travel clinic. And, and the, you know, I'm sure they're happy to teach, you know, if you've, if you've got any particular questions, email questions, not, not ring. Make sure that everyone has their normal basic childhood vaccines very nicely up to date and think about BCG. Important messages. Thank you so much for that, Deb. Thanks so much, David. 
Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free. You get CPD points and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.